everyone. Welcome to Peculiar Stories and Far Out Tales. I am Kim Yellen. And I'm Anna Howington. And I'm just going to jump right in today. Cool. So I'm going to tell you the story of Satan's Storm. Ooh, good name. I know, right? <laughs> okay, so this is another story from Texas. And it's mostly because I've been reading this book called Texas Obscurities, which is fantastic and i'm going to put it in the show notes because it's got a lot of really great interesting stories um in it and the writing is also really really good so i highly recommend it um so this story was in there and it's from copperall texas where is caught where is it uh are you gonna get to that yeah no i'll tell <laughs> okay. you uh copperall texas it's just south of fort worth oh did you know that before you no i oh. never heard of this town. <laughs> never heard of it. This is hmm. another town right outside from where we used to live. That it's not Capel. No, it's not Capel. I thought it was Capel too, and I was like, "Oh, they just spelled it wrong." But yeah. then I looked it up. No, it's Copperl. Huh. K O P P E R L. Copperl. Well, hmm. Yeah, Texas is a big place. I know it's a very small town, so okay. not a lot of people live there. Okay. When the residents of Copperall, Texas, went to sleep on the night of June 14, 1960, it was a pleasant summer evening with a light breeze and temperatures hovering in the mid-70s. Earlier that day, there had been a lightning storm that was in the distance, but nothing had come of it, and by that evening, the skies were mostly clear, and everybody was just settling in for the night, until around midnight, when the conditions in this little town turned on a dime. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Out of nowhere, the temperatures doubled. Oh. And the winds picked up to about 80 miles an hour. Ooh. Trees and power lines got knocked over. Several cars on the road overheated and died. And the local grocery store's roof blew off along with several roofs on barns and homes. It was just mayhem. This is in the middle of the night? Middle of the night. Oh. Everybody went to sleep. Everything was cool. It was a nice summer night. And then all of a sudden at midnight, like, the conditions just flipped. Ugh. And uh, so a quick little physics lesson for all y'all. <laughs> Fun fact that I learned yesterday, and shout out to Eldar for, for this one. Uh, so you'd think that when a roof blows off in a storm, that it's because the wind hits the roof and, like, knocks it off. Mm -hmm. But that's actually not the case. It's because of pressure changes. So... When high winds are blowing over a roof, it creates a lower pressure on top. And the pressure below the roof is equal to the atmospheric pressure, which is a higher pressure. And this difference in pressure causes an upward thrust, and the roof just kind of pops off. I Not to, like, go against what Eldar said. I, I've heard that's an old wise tale. But oh, really? Yeah, because you, you know how they used to tell you, like, like we grew up in, like, Tornado Alley, like, that you're supposed yeah. to open the windows? I like re remember seeing something on the Weather Channel or something that they said that don't open the windows anymore. That that's oh maybe it's just that it doesn't help. Maybe that's why they said not to open the windows. Because it's definitely a thing. It's called Bernoulli's principle. Yeah, and it's the reason why airplanes lift off. I bet it was just. I bet they just said that that it like it just doesn't help anything. I bet it's a combination of both. You you could be right though. Maybe it is a wives' tale. No, about no, it's definitely not a wives' tale about airplanes. No, no, no. <laughs> yes, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> That's definitely why airplanes lift off. Hmm. I'll have to look into that. Yeah. Because I always... I don't know. I mean, no. I always believe that, too. But then I remember seeing the thing about on the Weather Channel. But then... I don't know. Okay. Well, I, 
it's as if we're not physics people and don't know what we're talking about. <laughs> but I don't know what I'm talking about. I clearly. think when a like tornado is blowing through, the atmosphere is just going yeah. crazy. Well, once it pops off, right. then the wind does blow it in the direction of the wind. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I think like that lift happens, or at least that's what I read. I did research it a little bit, and I found some things saying it was true, but maybe I didn't go far enough. I don't know. And then there were all these like roofing companies that was like make this perfect roof like won't you won't Won't blow away because of some little thing that we put i don't know yeah Hmm. anyway well you seem to look into it you're you're right i don't know that i'm right i saw this one thing one time compared to you that did research i i think you're probably right i don't know i don't remember the thing about the windows though you don't remember oh that was like always like when i was a kid they were like open your open your windows just to crack to like equalize the pressure I remember and then, them telling us to get into the bathtub. Well, yeah, yes. But do I don't that. know why that was either. I think it's just supposed to be the strongest, like with all the pipes and stuff. It's supposed to just be like the strongest part of the house. Oh. But and then, mm. well, speaking of things changing, this isn't quite the same thing. Have you ever heard during like an earthquake, you're supposed to like duck down, like you're supposed to get underneath something? Is that so if something falls off, it won't hit you on the head? Yeah, but they've changed that now. When I lived in San Francisco, they said don't do that anymore because then if something does fall on you, then you're just stuck in like this crouch position and you can't breathe. And so you're supposed to just like stand in a doorway because Hmm. I figure if the house is falling down, then I guess you're okay. But you're not supposed to crouch anymore. So I think stuff changes. I don't know. Yeah, I had never been in an earthquake before until a few years ago. I was in Tokyo with Eldar and we were in one of these high-rise hotels. Uh. <laughs> and I guess, like, the way that they're built, they sway. Yeah, yeah. If they don't sway, they'll break. Yeah. Yeah. But I didn't know that. <laughs> and I didn't know anything about it. And it started happening. And I freaked out. Yeah. We started running down through the stairwell. I mean, we must have been, like, on, like, the 20th floor or something. And we ran down. Oh, no. I thought my life was ending. Yeah. I really thought it was all over for me. I was like, this is it. And, you know... Actually, it was it was more than a few years ago. Clearly, I'm just way too old now. But it was, <laughs> it was not that long after um, the tsunami. What happened in Fukushima happened. Yep, that'll do it. I thought it was I thought it was the end. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when I lived in in San Francisco, I had many a discussions about what was scarier: earthquakes or hurricanes. Because I'm I'm from South Texas, and we have a lot of hurricanes. Because they were always like hurricanes, and I was like, no. Are you kidding me? Like, the ground needs to stay where it's at. Yeah. I was uh, a few, a long time ago, when I was in, I think it was in Yokohama, on my birthday, and there was a big earthquake, and it freaked me out. And it's kind of a similar story. I was in a mall, and I was with my friend. I was like, we need to get out of here. We need to get out of here. And I was, like, dragging (laughs) her. And she was just laughing because, like, no one else cared. Like, everyone else was just going about whatever. We got down to the lobby and the people looked at us like we were crazy. Right. We we're like, there's an earthquake. And they're like, so? Yeah, sure. <laughs> I mean, they were very nice because they were Japanese. And yes. they were, you yes. know, but. Yeah, just go back to sleep. And I thought that we'd see the whole of the hotel down in the lobby when mm. we got there. I was like, we're going to have to make it through a crowd. Yeah. And like, <laughs> nobody was nope. down there. You know, earthquakes are worse, too, because I feel like there's more warning for hurricanes. Uh, That is exactly my rationale. Like, there is a season. There are warnings. Uh There's a place you can go. Like, I remember when I was telling my dad that story about when I was when there was an earthquake on my birthday a long time ago. And I really wanted to get outside. And he was like, why do you want to get outside? Like, outside's not any safer. Like, there's nowhere to go. Like, where do you go? Right. No. Yeah. Uh, Earthquakes are way worse. Every person that's listening to this and lives in California is arguing with me. I don't care. They're way worse. Yeah, they like, are. Yeah. Not to like yeah. 
I'm not going to like talk trash on people, but the only people that like get really hurt in hurricanes are like the idiots that like stick around and like go surfing and stuff. Yeah. Get out, people. Leave. Just leave. There's like a five day warning. Just leave. Like, I know, right? Yeah, they do give them plenty of time. Yes. Ugh, no. Earthquakes, worse than hurricanes. 100%. So much worse. Good. Totally. I'm glad you agree because nobody <laughs> ever agreed with me. Okay, sorry. Right. Well, we agree yeah. on that, but not on the, not on the Bernoulli's principle <laughs> on the on the roof popping off. Right, yeah, yeah. All right. So um, so back to Copperell, Texas. Uh, pretty quickly after these temperatures start to rise and these winds start, the power goes out across the town, and that shuts down everyone's air conditioner. And this is when people start waking up to these extremely high temperatures. Yeah. When the air conditioners go out in Texas, that's when there's a problem. They, oh, yeah. they can get through yeah. anything, but if the air conditioners go out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So many of them, they like get up, they run outside because they think their houses are on fire. Oh. Uh, but when they get outside, it's even worse. Oh. And the temperatures are so high, they can barely breathe. And there's all this lightning going off overhead. Ooh. But there's no rain. Uh. So it's like this wind, this crazy lightning these like insane temperatures that they feel like they're in an oven. When was this? Like when? This was uh, in 1960. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it wasn't even that long ago. Residents, they start to hose themselves down. Mothers start to wrap their children in wet blankets to try to cool them down. And anyone who has access to like a cellar or like a storm shelter, they all go underground just seeking relief from this like oppressive heat. And it was like the whole town, right? Yeah. Ugh, ugh. So this continued for like three hours. Oh, that's around, even weirder. <laughs> I know. It was a while. Ugh. And then at around 3 a.m., the heat relents, the winds slow, and it's over as quickly as it started. I don't like it. <laughs> really crazy, right? Yeah. So the next day, they go out to assess the damage, and they find that large swaths of farmland are just scorched. Wow. The crops have been carbonized. They've turned like black. Grass and leaves and plants were all dried out. The temperature that night had climbed to 140 degrees during the event. What? Oh my goodness. Yeah. Oh, Oh, yeah. Retired school superintendent George Day claimed that the freak event reminded him of what hell must be like. Reminded him. Yeah, I know. That's funny. He... Have you been there before, George? <laughs> That's weird that he said that. Yeah, this reminds me of hell. <laughs> it was called my first marriage. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh... uh... <laughs> Local farmer Pete Burns concurred, insisting that it had been so hot he couldn't place his hands on the walls of his house and joked, I thought there would be a guy along shortly with a pitchfork to pick us all up. Ah, these, these Copperall, Texas folk. Yeah. They're uh, yeah. real comedians, yeah. these guys. Salt to the earth. <laughs> so what happened in Copperall was a rare weather phenomenon called a heat burst, which is basically when a dying thunderstorm collapses on itself, which sounds terrifying. Yes. <laughs> when a storm begins to dissipate, most of the air within it moves downward in what is called a downdraft. Mm-hmm. Now, usually this air is cooled with rain, so you don't feel the temperatures rise as that downdraft goes towards the earth. 
In cases of heat bursts, there is warm, dry air present in the mid-level of the atmosphere, making the rain from the storm evaporate before it gets to the ground. And with no precipitation to cool the resulting downdrafts, hot air will continue to crash towards the earth, and the compression that happens during that fall increases the heat further. Because just as air cools as it rises, like think if you're like on top of a mountain, how much cooler that air is, the opposite is also true. When air descends, it gets warmer. Wow. In Caporal, the dying lightning storm from earlier in the day caused superheated air to descend onto the town with extremely hot gusts of winds, creating a heat burst that became known to locals as Satan's Storm. Ooh. And that is what happened in June of 1960 in a little town in Texas. That's... And it was terrifying. And there haven't been that many of them that happen. And that's the worst one that I found on record. Yeah. Yeah. Because oh. it just like, I mean, it completely like, I mean, it looked like somebody had torched crops. I mean, there's pictures of it. It's crazy. There's There are like modern pictures of it? Uh-huh. Oh, yep. that's, I was going to say like, some of this sounds a little bit like, you know, Jim Bob down the road just telling a story. Yeah. But if there's like <laughs> pictures. Oh. Yeah, there was pictures. It was in the newspaper. And because everybody experienced it, it was really well-known that it happened. I don't like that at all. I know. It's crazy, right? That's crazy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine walking out of your house? It's 140 degrees, and there's just lightning going off overhead. In the middle of the night? No. And these huge winds, and there's no rain, Mm. and it's dry. Like, it's so dry. No, I would hate it. You would think the world was ending. <laughs> right, 100%. I'd, yeah, I think I'd move. I'd be like, I'm done with this town. I thought that was such a crazy story. Ugh. I mean, I feel like we're going to be dealing with a lot of really crazy weather mm-hmm. patterns in the coming years. Yep. So, Buckle in, buckle everyone. <laughs> <laughs> yep. oh, exactly. Wow. Because it ain't getting any better. No. No, not, not anytime soon. No. Nope. Well, thanks for telling me that. That was crazy. Yeah. Sure thing. Cool. Looking for your next great audiobook? Try Audible for free for 30 days. With thousands of titles to choose from, Audible has something for everyone. I recently listened to Intimations by Zadie Smith on Audible and loved it. The writing is beautiful and the author's narration was fantastic. Visit audibletrial.com slash peculiar to start your free trial today. So I'm doing a real left turn, and I'm going to do the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist. Ooh, I don't know anything about this. It's, I think it's cool, because, like, it's, like, a huge crime that, like, like, it happened, and then that was it. And then these, like, people just, like, ran off into the night, and then we've never heard anything. (laughs) So, a bit about the museum, just background on the museum. It was started by this woman named Isabella Stewart Gardner, obviously, and then she decided to name the museum after her, and she was an art collector, She opened the museum in 1903 in Boston, and she was a bit, I would say, eccentric. From the things I was reading and, like, the things I was watching, she just, you know, I think she was just really into her art, and that was about it. So um, one of the kind of weird things is that when she died, she left a bunch of money to the museum, and then she stipulated that the arrangement of the art could not be moved, and you could not add or take away any of the art. So how she left it, she just thought it was perfect, and there's no way you could ever improve on perfection, and so she just left it like that forever, or she wanted it left like that forever. Um, so she she's 
made a rule that the arrangement of the art could never be moved and they couldn't add any art and they couldn't take away any art. So like her art collection was perfect and you couldn't do anything to change it, which I thought was super weird. <laughs> and it kind of becomes significant later. So then fast forward to somewhat modern times. So in 1982, the FBI discovered a plot to rob the museum. And so because of that, uh, they added in 60 infrared motion detectors. They added a closed circuit television. And then they also added cameras to the outside of the building because hmm. the board decided that the inside of the building would be too expensive. So it was just on the outside. Wait, so they put in all these infrared lasers and all this stuff and they were like, mm, I don't think we're going to splurge on a camera. Right, yes. <laughs> just cameras on the outside of the building. They were like, we're, you're never going to want to know what happened inside the museum, right? <laughs> like, why would you want to know that? In 1988, they hired a security consultant. And the security consultant was like, dude, you need to like beef this up for real. And so he gave them a whole bunch of other suggestions to improve the security of the building. But because, first of all, because the museum had no money, and then also because of Isabella Stewart Gardner's wishes that she didn't want any major renovations, they decided not to go through with these security enhancements. Huh. Which, again, is kind of weird. I don't know. Yeah. I, I feel like it just seems like such a weird thing to be like, I don't want any improvements on my building after after I die. I also just kind of feel like, how could that go into perpetuity? Right. Like, how yeah. are you going to be able to really, like, keep things exactly the way they are? Right. What if they need to sell a piece in order to keep the museum alive? Like, right. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. And then, like, I mean, it says that the museum was under financial strain. And then I was thinking about it, too. Like, I had a yearly membership at some of the museums in San Francisco that, like, I would go to a lot because they had, like, new exhibits and, like, they had mm -hmm. traveling stuff. And, like, if they just had the same thing and it looked the exact same every time I went, I wouldn't go more than once. I'd be like, well, I saw everything and that's it. Now I'm leaving. Yeah, no. So, I don't know. It just feels so, that's so weird. You know what? Rich people are crazy. Right, but. It's just, you just, after a certain amount of money, just you crazy. just start to lose it. Yep. True. So apparently the security flaws at the museum were an open secret with all of the guards. Like everyone knew that security was a bit of a joke. So fast forward again to Sunday, March 18th, 1990. It is St. Patrick's Day, which I feel like kind of makes it funnier. <laughs> and so around 1230 a.m., so in the middle of the night on St. Patrick's Day. Well, I guess that's not the middle of the night on St. Patrick's Day. That's probably just when things are beginning on St. Patrick's yeah, Day. Yeah, right. <laughs> Some partiers saw these men, like, walking around the museum dressed as policemen. They, they thought they were policemen. Um, there were two security guards on duty that night, a man named Rick Abbott, who was 23, and then there was another guy named Randy Hested, who was 25. Rick Abbott was the regular night watchman, and Hested, this was his first night working. I think Rick's in on it. Uh, I think you're reading the future. How big is this museum anyway? Do they really need two people? Uh, yeah, like it was talking about multiple floors. And I, okay. I think it's like a substantial. They have a picture of it. It's, I mean, it looks like from the picture that it's like four stories. Okay. I think I read somewhere it has like 1,500 pieces of art. Okay. So um, as part of their protocol, one of the guards would sit at this desk and then the other one would do rounds. So Abbott was the first one to do his rounds. So he was walking around. While he was walking around, a fire alarm started going off. And so he went and he looked for all these different, like, to see if there was smoke or fire or whatever. And he couldn't find anything. So because he couldn't find anything, he just decided to turn the fire panel off. Suspicious. Very suspicious. Like, nobody's cooking steaks. It wasn't just like it just went off in your kitchen. Right, Right, yes. Like, something's wrong. They were saying something about, like, maybe it was, like, 
the St. Patrick's Day people were, like, causing a commotion, but, like... Oh, you know what else, though? I take that back. So, the other day, my <laughs> fire alarm would not stop going off. Oh. And I got so freaked out because, like, immediately I'm like, it's carbon monoxide. Yeah, yeah. And then when it wasn't, I was like, it's a ghost. And then I was like, <laughs> you're insane. <laughs> and then I Googled it. And I found out that, like, if you have really – because, like, it was raining really bad outside. If there's really high humidity in your house, oh. all of a sudden if the humidity changes, that it will think it's smoke and it will go off. Oh. So – one time, like probably two or three years ago, I was sleeping and my fire alarm started going off in the middle of the night. Hmm. And and I never quite figured that out. I never really thought about the humidity, though. It can be humidity or it can be dust. Huh. So, yeah, those are all some possible options. Maybe, yeah. So I imagine in this like dusty museum, this like old museum, something was probably amiss. Or it was a part of the plan. Right, yes. To distract. Well, I was dealing with the fire alarm. I have no idea what happened on this floor. Yeah, it it might have been something like that, too. Yeah. So the the fire alarm started going off. Um, He also stopped at the side door, opened the side door, and then shut it again. Weird. I'll get to it in a second. But they do, they think that it was like a sign that like he, that was his like sign to the guys outside that like, yeah. So then he ended his rounds and then he went back to the desk. So now it's Hested's time to like be patrolling and Abbott is supposed to be sitting at the desk. So he's sitting there and then at 1.20 a.m., these two guys buzz on the employee entrance, so the side door, and they're dressed as police officers, and they say that they're the police and that they heard there was a disturbance and to let them in. And so Abbott, against policy, buzzes them in and lets them in, saying that he thinks they're real police officers. Hmm. So they get in, and they start talking to him, and they're walking around. And then as they're walking around, Abbott says that he noticed that the mustache on the taller man appears fake. <laughs> so... They're very good criminals wearing fake mustaches. And then there's a shorter man, and the shorter man says to Abbott that he looks familiar and he thinks that he has a warrant. And so he tells him to, like, come out towards him, like, come out from behind the desk and show him some ID. And the desk is the only place where there's a security button that they could push to call the police. And this is the... This is the guy that's worked there for a while. Right, The yes. new guy is, like, are walking around the museum right now. Correct? Yeah. Okay, yes. cool. Yeah, so they they tell him to come out, and they say he might have warrants. And so as soon as he comes out, they push him against a wall, and they handcuff him, and then tells him that he needs to call the other guy, um, Hosted, and tell him to come back. So then the other security guard walks in the room, and then the other burglar grabs him, and they handcuff both of them. They duct tape them. They wrap duct tape around their heads. There's a really funny—I hate to laugh at people when they're, like, having these traumatic events, but there's a really funny picture of— Abbott all duct taped up like it's kind of funny that they like found him and were like no we're not gonna cut it off let's take a couple pictures and he's got this like <laughs> this like super long like long curly like 90s hair That's awful. and it's all like taped up anyways oh, I'm very sorry Mr. Abbott well should you be that yes I'm kind of thinking you were in on it so I'm not that sorry but yeah and then without getting directions they led the guards to the basement and in the basement they handcuffed them to a steam pipe and a workbench And then they took their IDs and they told them that now they know where they live and don't tell the authorities. And if you don't tell the authorities, you'll get a reward in a year. Again, 
super suspicious. That's an odd thing to say. Like, how are they not going to be able to tell people when right. there's art missing and they were the ones that were there? Right. Yeah. But, I mean, nobody, as you might have guessed, nobody caught them. So, like... Maybe they had some things that they didn't tell them. Maybe they had some evidence. Yeah. But I think it's weirder that they didn't get directions to the... Ba- like, do you know where the basement to anything was? Like, I don't know where the basement of the Met oh, yeah, is. Like, if, true. If I was robbing the place and they were like, take me to the basement, I'd be like, I... What? Like, I... That's where the cafeteria is. Yeah. Oh. oh, wait, no. No, that's... The, sorry, that's the Natural Museum of History. I think Coat Check... No, no, that's also the... That's also the Natural Museum of History. Uh, <laughs> never mind. Don't too many, to me. Too many, too many museums. museums. Yeah. But I, I just wouldn't know where these, like, employee areas would be if I walked into a place. So they knew where it was. They changed them up. Then they started kind of rampaging through the museum. So the first place that they went to was called the Dutch Room... Okay. And they know kind of their movements because of these infrared motion detectors. So the first place that they went was the Dutch room, which was on the second floor. And they started like, so they, I guess they started looking at the paintings or trying to figure out which paintings to take. And there was a device that started beeping that was telling them that they were too close to the paintings. And they just like smashed. (laughs) They decided they didn't want to deal with that. So the first painting they took was a painting called The Storm of Galilee and then another one called A Lady and a Gentleman in Black, which are both Rembrandts. So they broke the frames and then they, with a box cutter, like cut these paintings out of their frames. And then they took a smaller Rembrandt. They said it says a postage stamp sized self-portrait. And then some of the other paintings they took. So they took this other one called Landscape with Obelisk, which is by this guy named Flink, which they think that the reason that they took that was because for the longest time, everyone thought that it was a Rembrandt. I've never heard of Flink. I haven't either, but apparently he was, no. But he was, I guess he was a student of Rembrandt's. Okay. They always thought that this painting was a Rembrandt. It had long been credited to Rembrandt, but then they really recently, like it said months before this, had decided that it wasn't a Rembrandt, that it was by this guy named Guvert Fink. Hmm. And it was like quietly like attributed to them. Like the museum was like, don't tell anybody, but it's not a Rembrandt. So, <laughs> so they're just letting people like go through. Yeah, like, be like, look at all these Rembrandts. Because and, they don't think that people are actually going to read the plaques. And so they just put it in the same room and hope nobody would ask questions. So and then the other big painting, kind of the biggest name painting they took was called The Concert by Vermeer. Okay. There were uh, five Degas that they took. Oh, my God. Wow. They're coming out of there with like tens of millions of dollars. Yes. So the last piece of art that was taken is called Chaise Tortone, which is by Monet, not Monet, Monet. Mm-hmm. And it was in this room called the Blue Room. Now, the thing about the Blue Room is that when they like later, when they were looking back at like all, like I said, all those infrared things, which is how they know what rooms they were in and when they were in there or whatever, mm-hmm. neither of the thieves walked into the Blue Room. Like, there was no recording of anybody going into this room where the chaise tortone was during the robbery. The only time that someone was in the blue room... Rick was there, right? Doing his rounds. Yes. You're like an investigator, Anna. Sorry, I'm like telling your story for you. I apologize. No, that's totally (laughs) it. Like, when he was walking around was the only time that they ever detected anybody in the blue room was during his rounds. So, start thinking about Mr. Rick. I think it's pretty clear. Yeah, yeah. So before they left, they checked in on the guards one more time and asked them if they were comfortable. How polite of them, Yes, you know, just to double check. Yeah, you guys okay? Or maybe they just wanted to make sure they were still there. Right, <laughs> maybe, yeah. You guys want any water? Is that, everything's, everything's cool? You guys are cool? Hmm. And then they went to the security director's office, which, again, 
how would they know where the security director's office is? <laughs> they took the uh, the cassette tapes. This was the 90s. So they took the cassette tapes <laughs> with the uh, video recordings and then also the data printouts of the motion detectors. So they took those things, but they were saved on hard drive, which is why they were able to get them later. Hmm. But but still, that they knew enough to like get that stuff. I felt like that was pretty significant. Hmm. So they made two separate trips to their car, one at 2.40 and one at 2.45. And then they left. And they just like drove away and drove into the black and and nobody really knows who they are. Wow. It wasn't until the next day when like the next shift started, they weren't able to get buzzed into the building. So they had to call the security director who opened the building with a key and so then they saw all these paintings were missing and the guards weren't there and so they called the police and then the police were the ones that found found these guys in the basement of the building so immediately the fbi started to kind of suspect that they probably weren't like real art people that they were kind of just like crashing and like trying to grab whatever they could um Mm -hmm. first there was like i said the thing about the fist painting that wasn't an actual rembrandt um there was also a whole bunch of more expensive Pieces, there were pieces by Raphael and Botticelli and Michelangelo that they didn't even touch. And then on the third floor, there was a painting called The Rape of Europa by Titan, which was the most valuable painting in all of Boston. And they like didn't even like touch it. Like they didn't even go up there. So they don't figure that they were like real like. Also the box cutters. Yes, like cutting art. I feel like if you're like really like into art, you would never like cut like, that seems so, like, aggressive. But but they kind of figured that they were just trying to, like, grab, like, small stuff. That might have had something to do with it, too. Maybe it's just, like, grab and run, right. maybe. Right, yeah. And that's why they didn't, like, go after this, like, really expensive but stuff. But I feel like if you were going to do something like this, you would do more research. It just seems, like, so sloppy. Well, it sounds like they did research anyway. Like, I don't understand why you do your research to, like, find out where, like, all these places were, but then not do your research about what the most expensive painting in the building was. Like, yeah. You know, like, I mean, it seems to me like somebody did some amount of like casing this place. And it wasn't like they just grabbed all of the stuff that was like closest to them. Like they went to a bunch of different rooms. So have any of these paintings and drawings, have any of them showed up on the art market since then? No. So so the FBI immediately started an investigation because they figured that the art would cross state lines. Mm -hmm. So there's been a couple suspects. And the first one is is Rick Abbott. They figured that he might have opened the door and shut it as a, like, sign to somebody else. Also, the most suspicious thing, like I said, was about the motion detector, how there was no motion in one of the rooms where a painting was stolen. Hmm. But the FBI agent overseeing the case in the early years determined the guards were too incompetent and foolish to have pulled off the crime. So kind of a dig there. But I guess, Mm -hmm. I don't know, if somebody was like, I don't think you did this because you're too stupid. I'd be like, well, I didn't do it, but you know, maybe back off a little bit, bro. I also kind of feel like if you're 23 years old and you're helping with the heist or something, I just think about 23-year-olds and I just think like, I feel like they would expect almost like an instant gratification Mm -hmm. from like whatever thing they're doing. I don't really feel like a 23-year-old would have the patience to wait what now it's been however many years. I mean, unless they already had a buyer. Right, yeah. No, 100%. You know? yeah. Regardless, like, there's some other suspects, but I feel like he knew. Like, he knew it was happening. Maybe he just got, like, a kickback later. Mm-hmm. I don't think he was, like, the mastermind and he was, like, who did it. Mm-hmm. But I, I do feel like he was involved in some way. So, 
Yeah, so that was Rick Abbott. Um, there was suspicions of Whitey Bulger doing it, um, who was a big crime boss. Um, he apparently said that he did not do it, but he was interested in finding out who did it because um, it was committed on his turf and he wanted to pay tribute. So he wanted to figure out who it was just as much as anybody. Hmm. One of the reasons that they thought it was Bulger was because of the fire alarm going off is apparently a sign um, that the IRA used, that the Irish Republican Army used a lot to like warn of a heist coming up. And Bulger, I guess, worked a lot with the IRA. Hmm. So they thought maybe he would have something to do with it, but there hasn't really been any evidence. They just kind of figured he was involved in some way. Hmm. In 1994... So four years after the heist, uh, the museum director received an anonymous letter from someone, not someone claiming to have done the crime, but somebody that said that he was kind of being like a third party in between the people that did it and the museum. The letter was saying that they just wanted $2.6 million and then the artwork would be returned. And that is nothing for those pieces. Right. No. But I mean, if you I feel like it's kind of like what you said, like, how do you sell? I mean, I'm sure somebody knows, but like. How do you sell these like really famous pieces of art? There's got to be like a black market. I mean, if they didn't have a buyer and they went in there and stole those pieces, what idiots. That's true. Yeah, I bet they, they, uh, that makes sense too. Yeah, they. it would seem like they would have somebody set like, up. What are you going to do? Sell that to your grandma? Like, right. what are you thinking? Nobody right. has that kind of money. Like, you should have. Somebody like lined up. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, so, but they just wanted $2.6 million sent to an offshore bank account. And they said that they would hand it over. Um, they said that if uh, the museum was interested, that they should put a coded message in the Boston Globe. So um, the museum director, this woman named Ma- uh, named Anne Holly, Holly, really thought that this was a strong lead. So they put the um, coded message into the Boston Globe in a May 1999 edition. And then a few days later, somebody wrote them again and said that they... They saw the ad and that they wanted a little bit of time to look through their options to try to figure out if if they did want to actually give them the paintings. And then nobody ever heard from them again. So. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Just kind of a a red herring, I guess. You know, there's like some dude just sitting in Boston. With with like like a Degas on his. All (laughs) this stuff like in his attic. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just sitting there. Yeah. Yeah. And like there's like a rat like nibbling on the side. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so the biggest lead, kind of kind of what we were talking about, the people that were probably behind it was um, the Marlino gang. So there were two guys um, that they suspected. Uh, one was named Robert Gentari, and then one was named Robert Gentile. And so Robert Gentile was picked up on drug charges. And so they started to put pressure on him and were like, dude, you need to tell us if you have the paintings. And he kept saying, no, I don't have these paintings. Um, and apparently, uh, Gintari's widow, he had died in 2004 and his widow said that, yeah, he had the paintings. She just didn't know where they were now. So they started to really <laughs> pressure Gentile about it. He took a polygraph test that indicated that he was lying about knowledge <laughs> of the, dude, polygraph tests never work out. I feel like I would never, I would never take one. I'd be too scared. I'd, they'd ask me any question. They'd be like, what's your name? I'd be like, Anna. And it'd like jump and right. they'd think I was, you know, yeah. I would be way too scared to take it it's never a win i don't know like i feel like it's kind of debunked science now like they don't really use I them think so, but yeah i feel like i would never it's never a good thing to take a polygraph test but the polygraph test said that he was lying i mean he kept saying that he was telling the truth they said well we'll retest you when he got retested he said that elena who was gintari's widow had once shown him the missing rembrandt uh the self-portrait 
And the polygraph machine said that he was telling the truth. But then after he took the polygraph, he was like, no, I was under pressure. It wasn't me. I don't know what it was. Um, a few days after the polygraph test, uh, the FBI stormed Gentile's house in Manchester with a search warrant. They found a secret ditch beneath a false floor in the backyard shed, but found it was empty. Gentile's son explained that the ditch had flooded a few years ago prior and that his father was very upset about whatever was destroyed. Hmm. So, and then the, he also had copies of the Boston Herald that had talked about the robbery. And he had a piece of paper that had the names of each of the works of art and the supposed black market price written on them. Yeah, he did it. So, <laughs> yeah. You're just going to bounce around. Just whoever. No, I think yeah. he did it with Rick. I think Rick was in, with, they were uh, in on it with him. Yeah, I think yeah. that they had some kind of connection there. Probably. That they were the two other guys. I mean, that's, yeah, of course. Yeah. So um, the last uh, suspect was this guy named uh, Bobby Bonetti. So he was also involved in... Um, hey, I'm Bobby Bonetti. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Is that bad? Could I, should I not do that? I don't think it's... I don't think it's bad, but I don't know. I mean, okay. his name is Bobby Bonetti, and he was in the <laughs> mafia. <laughs> like, I don't think... And he was from Boston. Like, I don't know. Boston Bobby. Boston Bobby. Bobby Bonetti. <laughs> so they think that he was involved. So he was indicated by this man named Miles J. Connor Jr., who was um, a known art thief. And Connors was in jail. And while he was in jail, he was like, hey, you guys should look at this Bobby Bonetti and see, you know, because I had told him. And Bobby told me that he was going to go rob this place and then use the paintings as like leverage to try to get me out of jail. And so they were like looking into it. And then it turns out that Bobby Bonetti was murdered in 1991 in like gang warfare. Uh oh. So they couldn't really talk to him anymore. So Connors told the investigators that he would help to try to figure out where this artwork was in exchange for his freedom. The investigators were like, we don't think that we can like do all the stuff that you want us to do. So then he became like unhelpful. Then he didn't want to help anymore. But Connors did tell them to turn their attention to this guy named William P. Youngsworth who was another kind of art dealer. So they followed up on his lead and they went and did a bunch of raids of this guy Youngsworth's antique stores and homes. And this journalist found out about it, this journalist named Tom Marshberg. And this is, are you ready? This is where it gets crazy. I'm ready. So apparently, so Marshberg started talking to Youngsworth and was like, hey, do you know where all of these paintings are? So one night in August 1997, Youngsworth called Marshberg and told him that he had proof that he could return the Gardner paintings under the right conditions. That night, Youngsworth picked up Marshberg from the Boston Herald offices and drove him to a warehouse in Red Hook in Brooklyn. And in the, in the storage unit, there were several large cylinders of tubes. And this journalist, this Marshberg, said that Youngsworth opened one of the tubes and unfurled the Storm of Galilee and showed him the painting and he was like oh it's all cracked and he like proved to him that it was there and then he like rolled it up again and put it back in he typed up the story for the boston herald but he left out who his informant was who now is we know is youngsburg and did not include where this warehouse was and so the hmm. fbi figured out where the warehouse was several months later they raided it but they couldn't find anything they kind of don't think that Marshberg is telling all of the truth. There's some debating about, because he talked about them like unfurling the painting, which they were saying would not really happen, that like the paintings hmm. are a bit more rigid than that. Like, 
Hmm. They're not like a sheet. Like something that I was I was watching said it'd be like cardboard. It'd be like rolling up cardboard because oh. of like the varnish that was on it. Like it's not hmm. like they're like, yeah, like I said, they're not like a sheet. Hmm. And then he he supposedly supplied some paint chips that the authorities could test. And the paint chips did turn out to be from the Rembrandt era, but they don't think that it was used in the painting The Storms of the Sea of Galilee. But they said that it might, some of these paint chips, like the colors that they used, might be from the concert, like might be from the Vermeer painting. Hmm. So nobody really knows where these paint chips came from. And nobody really knows where the paintings ended up. Um, in total, 13 works of art were stolen. In 1990, the FBI estimated the value of the hall to be 20, uh, sorry, to be $200 million. Jeez Louise. Well, wait. And then the estimate was raised to $500 million in 2000. And then in the late 2000s, some art dealers suggested that the hall could be worth $600 million. Oh, my God. That's so crazy. Yeah. So the most expensive artwork, like I said, was the painting called The Concert by Vermeer. I guess that there's only 34 paintings that are attributed to Vermeer. Hmm. Um, Experts believe that this may be the most valuable stolen object in the world, like ever. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, And so as her decree said, nothing in the collection should be moved. So because the paintings were stolen, they're just still hanging there with empty frames. Like the paintings (laughs) are just empty hoping that they'd come back and as placeholders. Um, There was a reward that was posted right away for a million dollars three days after the heist. That was increased to $5 million in 1997. And then in 2017, it was doubled to $10 million, but there was an expiration date for the end of the year. So if you're hoping to get that $10 million, you're about three years too late. (laughs) Um, And the statute of limitations expired in 1995. So if you turn yourself in and turn in these paintings, I guess you'll at least get $5 million and they can't prosecute you. Wow. So that's the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist. Wow. That was wild. Yeah. I don't know. These things, I feel like it's such a like different story than yours. Like these things that are just people, like it's just people doing crazy things and we can't figure out what they did as opposed to like nature. Like, yeah, they were very different stories this time. Good on us. Yeah. We did good. <laughs> yeah. The art world is so weird. I remember, yeah. did you read that article? I can't remember if it came out. It was sometime last year, I think. Maybe the year before. I want to say it was either in the New York Times or the New Yorker, but it was all about how these really wealthy people store these like really expensive pieces of art at these warehouses next to airports oh. in order not to have to pay taxes on them. What? So there's like all this art, like Picassos and 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 just all this stuff. This really, really like high end art. It's just like sitting in a warehouse, like these temperature controlled warehouses right. right next to airports because they're basically like these no tax zones. Oh. Where they're not technically in the United States. They're like cargo. So they don't have to pay the taxes on these pieces that are worth tens of millions of dollars. That's it's crazy. really sad to think about that all this art is just like sitting there. Nobody can see it. Nobody can enjoy it. People mm. just bought it on on like stocks. Like it's just like it's like an investment. Right. Just right. thought it was so sad to think about. Oh, I'll have to look that up. I had yeah. yeah, no, I had no idea. I'll send you the article. I'll find it. I can't yeah. remember where it was. It was either in the New York Times or the New Yorker, but I just remember reading that and being like, God, rich people are the worst. That's, I was just going to say that. Rich people do weird things. Yeah. I don't know. It's just like to buy all this like beautiful artwork just for your own financial gain and then never let anybody enjoy it. 
just lock it away. Right. Like, that's what I kind of feel about the, like, stealing art. Like, no one has seen... It's not hanging up in somebody's house. Like, if it's anywhere, yeah. it is, like, in someone's attic. Like... Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. That's a great story. It's yeah. fascinating. Thanks. I love a good heist movie, right? Yes. Don't you? Yeah. They should make a movie of this one. Yeah. They Maybe totally so should. Good. I wonder if there's... They don't really do many heist movies anymore. No, I feel like they kind of allude to it. I'm just looking at the bottom where it says fictional interpretations. Accounts of the robbery have been on TV shows Blind Spot, The Blacklist, The Venture Bros, and The Simpsons. I haven't heard about. Oh, Blind Spot and The Black. I used to watch Blacklist, but it got kind of. I'm not. I feel like the reason I watch TV is not to be actively watching TV. And so when they're like, when the shows are too involved, I'm like, ugh, never mind. Like, so I started to watch The Blacklist and then I was like, Oh, this is really interesting. And then after like five episodes, I'd look up and be like, what's going on? Like, I just, yeah, I don't know. I watch too a lot intense. of TV. Yeah. I, mine's just kind of background music TV. I watched so. I watched an entire series two days ago. Like what? the whole thing. It was called Love on the Spectrum. Oh, your sister posted that. on. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's so cute. I have to look at it. Oh, I just wanted everyone to find love. They were so, the people in it were just so wonderful and their families. And I don't know. I was like crying <laughs> throughout the whole show. It was so good. I feel like so I, good. I try to avoid reality TV sometimes because I feel like it can be really like exploitive. It but... was more documentary than reality TV. It wasn't oh, like a okay. game show. Like they weren't like, oh, let's match them up kind of thing at all. It was it was it was not like that at Just all. Just kind of following them while they're doing their thing. I thought that they did a very respectful job. It okay. was more a documentary. It wasn't like a game show. It wasn't like a gimmick. It was just like, these are these people and this is what it's like for them to go out there and try to find, you know, people that they can have relationships with and these are the challenges and these are their families and this is like, you know, they showed like couples that have been together for a long time and it was it was really well done. Okay. I'll, yeah. I'll check it out. But. <laughs> anyway, you yeah. want to do our rundown? Sure. Yeah. When was the last time I ran? It's so freaking hot outside. Yeah. <laughs> I have been keeping my runs pretty short mm -hmm. when I do get out there because it's just, I feel so like wiped out if I yeah. run yeah. in the heat. Yes. And I then don't, it just like defeats the purpose. I've heard all these things about running in the heat, like that it's like very like cleansing or whatever. And I'm like, no, mm -hmm. I just feel super tired and I'm wet and like, yeah, I just want to jump right in the shower and like, yeah, no. I, yeah, I don't feel good after running in the heat. And then I read this thing about what happens during heat stroke. <laughs> so yeah. apparently like your body takes blood away from your major organs when you get really hot. Right. Yeah. And it brings it towards your skin. Yeah. So, like, oxygen is being taken away from your brain, your heart, like, your all the important stuff. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And so, like, that's why you get so tired. Mm. And so, like, I was thinking maybe that's why I'm getting so tired after running in the heat. It's just I'm just having, like, a mini heat stroke. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Are they, well, I mean, they have, like, like, there's, like, layers. There's, like, heat exhaustion and. Yeah. I'm in one of those stages. Yeah. Oh, for sure. <laughs> I feel like if your, like, level of consciousness is affected in any way by the heat, yeah. you should stop what you're doing. Like, Well, yeah. And also, I have MS, and I'm really mm -hmm. not supposed to be getting too hot because then it, like, causes my symptoms to spike. Yeah. Yeah, but for sure. I, I mostly just ignored that until <laughs> until I read this thing, and then I was like, okay, now I really have an excuse not to run, yeah. <laughs> which is yeah. not good. But uh. So I guess that's my running story. 
Cool. I learned about heat exhaustion. <laughs> Good. It's always important. <laughs> What's yours? I was just in Oklahoma. Um, we all kind of met up in Oklahoma. My family's kind of spread out. Like I have a sister that's in St. Louis and then a sister that's in a whole other part of Texas. And so we decided to meet in East Oklahoma, kind of in the middle of nowhere. Very like social distancing vacation. Like we really didn't see anybody except for us. And my sisters and I decided to go for a run. I don't normally run with people. That's not like I feel like running mm-hmm. is such a like solo thing. Like I just kind of totally. go whenever like I'm yeah. running with people. I'm always like, eh, you can't go at your own pace. And then, you know, mm-hmm. so it, oh, I hate running with people. Yeah. I want to listen to my headphones and be by myself. <laughs> yes. Like I feel like that's like it's my time to just like listen to whatever I want to listen to and think about whatever I want to think about and go mm-hmm. wherever I want to go and go at whatever <laughs> pace or whatever. But yeah. I went with my sisters and it was really nice oh. to just kind of like. <laughs> Yeah, I hated it. That's the point of the story. <laughs> um, but it, it was just like a nice like chain. We just kind oh, of like I talked see. and yeah, like we we weren't running very far, but like because no, none of us were from the area, so I didn't really know where we were. But like, mm-hmm. yeah, just kind of like talking about stuff and like listening to music, not in a, in the headphones was kind of cool. Like I don't normally do that either because I feel like that's super rude most of the time. But isn't it though? Ugh, oh, I hate I think it. It's like the rudest thing in the world. Mm-hmm. Whenever I'm on the subway and people have I was their just stuff just playing, that. I'm just like. Like, who are you? And like, yeah. why do you think this is okay? Yeah, it's like, yeah. The, the bus is the worst. Like the trains and the public transit in San Francisco. I'm like, if you don't, like, I'm never going to be that person. But like, I'm, yeah. I'm in my head. I'm like, if you don't turn that off, I'm going to throw it on the ground. Like, and also, it's always like their taste in music sucks. I feel like a lot of times it's like really bad, like techno. Yes. <laughs> and I'm just yes. like, nobody wants to hear that unless you're at a club at 3 a.m. Turn no. it off. <laughs> it's just, I don't I just don't understand the like thinking behind what are you doing? Like, why yeah. are you doing that? It's like a power play, I feel like. Is it? You know what I, I mean? I feel like yeah. it's just, like, stupid. Like, they just don't realize how, like, super rude it is. Yeah, maybe that, too. But I always kind of feel like it's, like, a way of somebody, like... Dominating your know. space. Yeah. Like, kind of, like, yeah. forcing you to... Mm-hmm. Ugh. It's so... Anyway, and so when I'm oh, running, right. I feel like running... Sometimes people do it because they, like figure nobody's with them but it's just that really annoying like I can like slowly hear you approaching me like yeah totally go away so I I generally but we weren't running and and then I'm saying we did it but there wasn't anybody (laughs) else around like we were just like running on the street I think that's fine it's like when you're at like a public beach or yes yeah that's when it's terrible so but it was really nice to like run with my sisters and like like I said like talk and just kind of a different type of run I don't know. My sister's really, my my middle sister, Becky, she like, at the very end, she's like, okay, now sprint. And I was like, dude, I am not a sprinter. Like, I would like do it for like 30 seconds and then I'd start walking. And I'd be like, I'm not, I'm not sprinting. Like, no. Yeah. No, no. And she's yeah. like, that's how you get faster. And I'm like, I don't want to get faster. Like, yeah, we're not. That's why, yeah, that's why I don't run with people. <laughs> right. Exactly. Like, I'm just going to go at my pace. I'd rather, like, I, I tend to run kind of like distances. Like, I, yeah. my normal day is like six miles. Like. I'm not interested in going anywhere fast. Like, I will run my, like, 12-minute pace for a long time. Like, leave me alone. Yeah. But, yeah. I I, I feel you. Running is, like, it's, like, such a personal thing. It's, like, my time. Yeah. But I'm glad you enjoyed your run with them, though. Yeah, I think think just a change, like, something different. Like, that's always kind of nice. Shake it up a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Well... Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Yeah. Check out all of the stuff, all the Instagrams and the Facebook uh, yep. at PeculiarStoriesAndFireTales.com. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Patreon is Patreon.com slash P-S-A-F-O-T. And please rate us. 
subscribe to us. Give us five stars. All the stars. You know? All the mm-hmm. stars. Yep. Yep. It'll make us very happy. Mm-hmm. Cool. It will. All right. And remember that it is far better to be peculiar than it is to be boring. Woohoo!